Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter, too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by speechtherapypd.com. Hey, this is Michelle Dawson, and I need to update my disclosure statements. So my non-financial disclosures. I actively volunteer with Feeding Matters, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, NFOSD, Dysphagia Outreach Project, DOP. I am a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents, CSAP, a past president of the South Carolina Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, SCISHA, a current Board of Trustees member with the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia, and I am a current member of ASHA, ASHA SIG-13, SCISHA, the Speech-Language Hearing Association of Virginia, SHAV, a member of the National Black Speech-Language Hearing Association in Basla, and Dysphasia Research Society, DRS. Additionally, I volunteer with ASHA as the topic chair for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2023 convention in Boston, and I hope you make it out there. My financial disclosures include receiving compensation for First Bite podcast from speechtherapypd.com as well as from additional webinars and for webinars associated with Understanding Dysphagia, which is also a podcast with speechtherapypd.com. And I currently receive a salary from the University of South Carolina in my work as adjunct professor and student services coordinator. And I receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, as well as compensation for the CEUs associated with it from speechtherapypd.com. So those are my current disclosure statements. Thanks, guys. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely. All right, everybody. We are back. And it has been a long time coming. So happiest of 2024. Thank you for the grace while we took a good, well-rested break. I don't know about Aaron, but I still feel like I'm kind of breaking because I just woke up from a big nap right before we started recording. (laughs) So took me a minute to get the sleep out my voice, but it was a good nap. Erin, happy 2024, hon. How are you? We're just, you know, I'm tired. <laughs> it's because it's cold and wintry and gray. 
Yeah, it's just rainy here. We didn't get any snow, which I'd rather, honestly, I'd rather it be a little bit colder with snow than like 39 and rain. Ugh. Well, Pack Dawson was all prepped for Winter Storm Ember because we were, which is a funny name for a winter storm, but I mean, I won't pick the bloody things, but we were thrilled to have our first official Virginia snow. So I got everybody snow bibs, I think they're called, or galoshes, and Sienna brought us sleds, and we were- Galoshes? Are those boots? What are snow bibs? Snow bibs? They're like overalls, but waterproof. Oh, I just, I never called them snow bibs. Just- That's what, okay. I don't know if that's the right word, folks. If that's the wrong word, mm. no, I'm sure it is. I just, I just never call it, just like we don't call hats toboggans. Yeah, no, that's a hat. That's a snow hat. I think of a toboggan as a sled. Yes. Or candy. Or is that a tubularoo? I might be getting my candy mixed up. Toboggan is not a candy. Okay, so then it's a tubularoo. Toblerone. Toblerone is how you say that? Oh, wow. Wow, 24 is starting off great here. <laughs> I mean, for being a speech therapist, you make up a lot of pronunciations of things. <laughs> well, I mean, I fall back on it, but I'm not that kind of speech therapist. <laughs> also, I don't really like candy. Now, if it was a tater tot, I would know how to say that word in a heartbeat. But, you know, quesera. Okay, but we didn't get snow, guys. Regardless of whether you ride a toboggan, a werewind, or you wear a snow bib or whatever they're called, we got ice. I mean, it was very, very beautiful. And we did eat the icicles off some of the tree branches because they were like really pretty. But then I worried about whether or not there was like poisons because of the ozone and global warming. And then I was like, nope, just eat the icicles and enjoy yourself. So that's what we did. It's fine. We're fine. Anywho, on that note, folks, we're back. (laughs) So we wrapped up 2023 at the very end of November, right after ASHA. And I have to say, ASHA in Boston was an absolute treat. Full disclosure, I had the honor of serving as the topic chair for pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders. And Aaron was on the committee amongst with you know, 24, 25 other amazing, phenomenal human beings from across the country. But it was amazing for so many different reasons. One of them, Dr. Kelly Farquharson and Dr. Jennifer Simpson, they were the convention chairs for ASHA for 2023. But they made a They put forth a significant amount of effort to make sure that the theme of igniting innovation was embedded within so many different talks. They set the tone to make sure that we elevated voices that had been marginalized, and they set the tone for embedding counseling and neurodiversity affirming care across the life continuum in the convention. Y'all, the convention is run by a ton of volunteers. And I know I could go down that rabbit hole, but I will save that because Kelly and Jen are coming on in a couple of weeks to actually talk about the behind the scenes aspects of the convention. But it truly was fantastic. So Aaron and I, um, this is one of our favorite episodes every year, is doing our takeaways from convention. Everything that we learned that will shape and impact our clinical skills delivery And we want to share this with you. So Erin, you want to get us started with like the first course that you went to and what it all meant to you? It was also the most exhausted I think I've ever felt. This is my first ASHA where I was lecturing and for some reason decided to submit for four lectures. So it was a lot. Four of the lectures I went to were my own and it was so cool too. I feel like Michelle won't say this, but like, if you try to go through the Ash Convention with Michelle Dawson, just be prepared that you won't get two feet without her recognizing somebody or somebody recognizing her. There was a point where I had to be like, listen, we're going to go get food. If you see someone, just wave to them and we will come back and see them later. Because... (laughs) 
I we saw people. so many people. It was wonderful. I know it was wonderful. You also remember everybody and you're one of those people who like, even it, like, if I'm not sure, I won't say something. Michelle will. And if she's wrong, she'll just kind of gracefully, like, now learn everything about their story. But, like, she'll, yeah. We were driving in a Uber to another side of Boston, and she yells out the window at somebody that she knew. And I was like, I don't understand. It was, oh, it was a fellow faculty member. I was like, hey, doctor, you know, and then shouted out the window. And they're over there with their partner, and we were waiting. <laughs> And Aaron was like, I'm, I'm like, I've had enough people. <laughs> yes, I had to cut her off at some point. But it was so cool. We met so many people, so many podcast listeners, which is always very humbling and wonderful because sometimes like I feel like when we do these podcast recordings, just the two of us, like you forget that there's people actually listening to them on the other end of it. Like we just kind of talk to each other and then try and, you know, not think about how many people are going to be listening to it which is why we say the things that we say. So it was just very, very cool. And Michelle and I have talked about this a lot. Like we've created this community that we're so grateful for and that, you know, we know people that listen have similar core values to us and and want to make the field better and want to grow there just as a clinician every day. So we know if you listen, you're one of us. And so it was really cool to meet everybody. And I want to say thank you to everybody that came to my lectures. The My solo lecture, there were well, at least like 200 people in there, which was terrifying. No, no, I'm not even kidding. She's not even joking. Like she was sitting on the right and I'm lecturing. And my Karen, who has been on the podcast, um, was also there because her and I did a lecture on Saturday morning. And all of a sudden I'm sitting there and I'm lecturing and I hear these, someone sniffling like full on, like, and I'm like, Oh, I can't look over there because Michelle's crying like full on just bawling her eyes out. It was good. I was crying because it was good. I was was good crying. It wasn't like a crying of embarrassment. No, no, I was super proud of her. (laughs) That was really, really cool. And So we just want to say also a thank you to all of you because, yeah, it's very humbling. And Michelle and I didn't start this. We just wanted to, you know, good evidence-based practice out there. So on that note, one thing I will say is I was very, very excited to see how many talks there were with a focus on neurodiversity affirming care. I think they did a fantastic job of highlighting that. If you wanted to go to every single lecture with a focus on neurodiversity affirming, trauma informed, just all language, like there was a lecture probably at every hour that had some cultural component in that way. And that was awesome to see how our field is shifting and how people are wanting to learn more and how people are wanting to grow their practice. And it was actually really interesting at my hospital. I'm we're focusing on we're doing a presentation to the department on just salt language processing just to help with goal writing and and kind of get that ball rolling even more because the thing i'm learning too is in a really big organization sometimes things move a little bit more slowly which i'm having to be very patient but <laughs> and one of the I'm one sorry. of the women that's on your level of patience is like me being patient which is about the level of theodore bear Dawson being patient. So yeah, continue. Sorry. (laughs) So I, one of the women who is on the group with us making this presentation was like, you know, years and years ago when she started, we called it aided language, but there was a deep, I mean, just salt language processing is not a new thing. It's just something that kind of didn't get picked up in the same way as analytic learning did. And now it's, it's kind of having its comeback, I guess, as you would say. In in the lectures that I specifically my connecting through play lecture and then for feeding therapy and then Karen and I did an embodied cognition lecture and it was really wonderful and I will say that was at eight a.m. on a Saturday and in the furthest corner of the entire convention and there were still I was like props to all of you for making it there but to see people that are so eager to learn and to grow in their practice and to see what I think is so cool, like to see, you know, clinicians of all ages really trying to do better and know better. 
was just a very hopeful experience, I think. And Asha's just, the thing about Asha is like everybody that goes is just, they're really wanting to meet people. They're really wanting to connect. They're really wanting to learn more. So even though it's 14,000 people, it's still this like weird microcosm of just clinicians that are constantly trying to move the field forward in the most overwhelming, wonderful way. Yes. And one of the things that I was really thrilled that they did this year is because Asha is so cost prohibitive to kindred spirits that want to be there, but don't have the extra money lying around to go. And in truth, it could take, you know, a thousand to 3,500, give or take hotel and food. And not everybody can get that reimbursed, but their initiatives to create virtual platforms so that people can attend virtually and also connect virtually is, I think, one of the things I'm incredibly proud about witnessing that this year, as well as the master's level courses. Those advanced courses have historically been an extra $75 to $125 in order to attend. And they started dropping them to make them more accessible for those that can't afford it. So I think it was only like 15 or 20 or 25 this time around, loads better. So those little changes are systemic. They pull on the art of implementation science. You know better, you do better, you mm-hmm. process it a little bit of time. And yeah. Right. You and I, this is, you know, I kind of are shtick every year when you see on social media, everybody complaining and moaning and grunting about having to pay their ASHA dues, which yes, are there ways that ASHA can improve? Absolutely. But it's frustrating when people don't take the time to learn what ASHA actually is doing and yet have this, you know, incessant need to complain that they're not doing anything. And I will say, and I don't, I don't mean this to sound however it may come across, if it does come across in a negative way. If you are someone who is, you know, in your job, you go in, you do your work, you leave, you're comfortable with that. ASHA may not be benefiting you in the way that you necessarily want it to, because ASHA's job is to continue to move our field forward. And I think some people get frustrated. But again, some people also don't understand the difference between what ASHA does for you and what your state organization can do for you, which we have plenty of episodes talking about that. But for example, like ASHA came out with a statement recently about how billing codes got approved for billing for parent and caregiver education, which is a very big deal, which is a very big deal for reimbursement, for getting paid for essentially what we're doing. And although that may not necessarily look like our, you know, hourly rate has gone up, that is an incremental change that can then help you advocate for your rate going up if you're able to bill for other things that you're doing. So what she's talking about is effective effective January 1st. ASHA worked with Medicaid Medicare centers and we have brand new CPT codes for caregiver coaching across the life continuum, as well as some new audiology codes. And there was a couple of other codes, but that was the one that was most pertinent to our immediate work. Here's the catch. They got them approved and added essentially to the SLP super bill, like what falls within our scope of practice. However, it is then your state association's responsibility to then advocate to have those new CPT codes added to the state manuals. It's not an automatic, we have the codes at the federal level, so they're automatically going to go into the state level. So that's where your state association has to then advocate for the addition of those codes in the CMS manual at the state level. And then your state association has to advocate for the appropriate reimbursement rate of those new codes. It's multifactorial and different tiered, but that's 
freaking huge because how many times do you do home health and you show up and the patient's asleep or they come to the clinic and the patient's asleep? You could still do the coaching then because you're not treating the patient, you're doing the coaching. And we are clinicians, not magicians. And so if we're truly building up that caregiver in that hour time, now we have the right CPT code to reflect what it is that we're doing. Okay. Sorry. I just wanted to clarify that little... No, yeah. But I think with Michelle and I being involved with a lot of things with ASHA, we're able to see more of what they're doing. So we do see value in those dues that we don't want to pay either. But um, that's what we have to do to keep up our license. And yeah, I know that that's not the most popular opinion, but it's just something to keep in mind. And it's like with any organization, if you don't always take advantage, you might not be taking advantage of all of those things. And that's okay. But um just try to think about it that way, I guess. Also, and let me pull this up. If you truly want to see something changed, then volunteer for it. Because ASHA just issued at the start of the year, the call for volunteers is now open for committees. Um, It opened January for committees that start on January 1st, 2025. But if you're interested in volunteering on an ASHA committee, Applications are open until Friday, March 29th of this year, but they have a ton of committees where you could volunteer your time and your talents. So, and that was, so that's one of my takeaways from ASHA. They had a booth in the back. I'm not quite sure if y'all made it down to the exhibit hall. Also the exhibit hall, there was a puppy in the exhibit hall near the people that gave out free coffee. And I just like going and they let you love on the puppy. That's why they brought it. But they had the ASHA pack. They had the ASH foundation and the ASHA advocacy booths. And they were there talking with members about what it is that they do and they've been advocating for. It was really exciting when they were sharing this information that, hey, this is what we've been advocating for. This is the systemic change that we're trying to drive. And then to see it in print, to see it actually happening, y'all, take my money. That's That makes us better. So that was one of my big takeaways was how much is actually being done. So, yeah. Okay. That was exciting. So they had really good snacks this year. That's not a brilliant takeaway, but I did enjoy the food. It was quite lovely. (laughs) Okay. So tell me about one of the classes that you went to that you were like, oh yeah, baby. Oh, well, shout out. I went to Amy Lerman and Lindsay Larkin, who were in my ASHA LDP small group, they did a lecture on crucial conversations, which Michelle, you would have loved. And Amy, I think she's done some lecture speech therapy PD. If she hasn't, she will be soon. She's just a very dynamic human being, but they really were talking about what I love about their lecture, which is a lot of times what I like to focus on mine is it's less of a here's a how-to guide and more of a, what are things we need to consider? It was actually, and I said to them, it was the most interactive group that I saw in a lecture. People were very participatory. They had great questions and it wasn't a lot of information. It was more like discussion, anecdotal, and more ways that you can kind of analyze that information of what do we think about when we have a difficult conversation with a family? What are things we need to consider about them? What are things we need to consider about us? Which I always value because I think so much of the lectures we go to are about our patients and about our families. But what about us as a clinician and how we respond and how we present ourselves? Because so much of being able to have those difficult conversations is building a relationship with the families that we work with and for them to trust us and to understand the time. Like, yes, I always say read the room, but a lot of people don't know how to read the room. And that was something that similarly, the lecture I did with Dr. G. Marshall was about caregiver coaching. And I will always say too, I know this is the term that's used 
And so I use that term, but I don't love the term coach because it insinuates that someone's at a higher level than somebody else. And yes, you as the coach have more knowledge on the clinical subject, but that caregiver has more knowledge on their loved one or their child. So I don't have a term that I love to use. It is more of a partnership. But I think what we tried to do was break it down into before a session, during a session, after a session. Like what are things and kind of a checklist that you can do? How can you, you know, get a background information? Make sure you're getting background information on their therapy history too, because it's important for you to know where they're coming from with you as a therapist. If it's a family that this is their first time in therapy, it's going they're going to come in with a much different perspective than a family that has had a lot of therapy before. And if a family's had a lot of therapy before, I'm going to tread a little more lightly to try and understand what their experience was like and what they liked and what they didn't like. And a big thing we focus on like after a session too is how are you feeling? What is your reflection not only on okay, what am I going to work on in the next session? But like, how am I going to better connect with this family? What did I learn about them? What did I learn about me? And sometimes that reflection also is I'm not the right therapist for them. Yes, And that's okay. And that's okay. You may not be the right therapist for everybody. Sometimes our job is to plant a seed and connect them with the next therapist. And that is okay. So we can give ourselves permission that you're there for your season And then give yourself grace when you recognize the season is coming to a close. Just make sure that you help connect, segue over to the right therapist. Yes, but I loved, I did love Amy and Lindsay's lecture because they focused on like all the way through the lifespan because the way we interact with people shouldn't, like the same principles are always going to be there regardless of, you know, age and experience and it was fun to sit in a lecture where it was very, very interactive and they did such a great job of kind of, it was cool too, because I think what they were explaining in their lecture, they were modeling with the people that were there. That makes sense. Like it was a very, like I'm modeling how I listen, how I interact with the participants in the course. So if you ever see anything from Amy or Lindsay, I would highly, highly recommend taking it. Amy's going to be at Skisha in February, I know. And she's at a lot of other state conferences with this course that she's developed that is really great. So that, I think, was my favorite lecture, was the two of theirs. Awesome. The lecture that, honestly, because of the hats that I wore, I didn't really get to go to that many lectures this year because I was doing a lot of volunteer work at different booths. If you let me throw a fish at you at Asha, thank you for letting me throw a stuffed fish at you for the Seattle booth to get people hyped up. We did the, because you know in Seattle where they throw the fish at the fish market? I didn't know that was a thing until I started throwing fish at people, but it's a thing. No, the throwing fish at the fish market is not what you think it is. Fish at the Seattle fish market is actually, and we used to do this at my last job, the reason, so the Seattle fish market has one of the highest rates of pause of job satisfaction. And people are like, why does it have such a high rate of job satisfaction? People are working with fish all day. But it's because there's this culture of people will comment on their coworkers and when they're doing a great job and send a lot of positive affirmations. So at my job, we called them fish because it was like, we're, we're sending you a positive anonymous. So there's a, a big culture of like positivity and telling someone they're doing a good job and acknowledging people at the Seattle fish market. I love that. Well, we threw fish to get people hyped about going to Seattle, but it was so much fun and so joyful also. Um, So Gerald Jackson is the incoming convention chair for 2024 for speech pathology. He and the new ASHA president, Dr. Tina McNamara, who's a clinical educational audiologist, which is like really freaking cool to me. But um, I got to go throw fish at both of them. (laughs) I was like, this is... It was delightful. It was wonderful. But I was there and I also volunteered over, and I don't know if y'all checked it out, but they have BCS 
boards, a volunteer booth where you can go and learn about the current board certified specialist opportunities. There's one for child language, one for fluency, one for uh, swallowing. And there's a couple more that are in the works. There's a fourth, but I can't remember. It has to do with like the audiology branch, but I don't remember which one it was. Forgive me. I obviously did not do that good a job volunteering. But because of that and a couple other places that I had to go and support, I didn't get to go to that many lectures. But I did sit in the one that we submitted a call for papers. And it was myself, um, one of my very dearest friends, Dr. Tessa Gonzalez, who's a pediatrician, Carl Larson from Boston Children's Hospital, Emma Lou Justice from Spalding Rehab for Children, Andrew Scott from Tufts Medical Center, and Rachel Rosen from Boston Children's Hospital. We gave a talk on From the Cradle to the Classroom, PFD, uh, Interprofessional Practice for PFDs. And I know I know Tessa. It was basically the whole premise was one SLP and one interprofessional practice partner, right? So it was that that they worked with. So Kara had her physician, Emma Lou had her physician, and I worked with Tessa. And so we were up there talking about what is their scope of practice with responsibility to the PFD diagnosis and what is their roles and responsibilities and how do we work together? And it was dynamic to cover everything from the NICU to an aerodigestive tract clinic to outpatient home health in the span of an hour. But my biggest takeaway was listening to Tessa talk. And God knows I've as many conversations as we've had. She's a pediatrician, but she's also a mom of a child with PFD and dysphagia. And Listening to her talk about the realities of a pediatrician's limited exposure and experience with the new diagnosis code of pediatric feeding disorder is always just so incredibly humbling because we truly are, as the SLPs, the subject matter expert on PFD. We're the ones that tend to lead that. And pediatricians have such scant knowledge and exposure unless they saw it in one of their residencies. And and the reality of the legwork that we as a profession have to do to raise awareness about PFD, it is very overwhelming, honestly. And it means that we have to do a better job locally. It puts the onus back on the individual clinician reaching out to the individual pediatrician, raising awareness on what this diagnosis is, how it has four domains, and how speech is just one humble component, but we really do need to be building our teams. Also, my big takeaway was how incredibly brave and fearless she is as a human. To be able to stand there on stage and talk about the, those raw moments as a caregiver too, it just, I am perpetually in awe and of her and her muchness. So that was kind of cool. I think too, like going off of that, where I am now, I don't work with as many pediatricians because usually if they're in the health system that I'm in, they're seeing some sort of specialist, not always, but most of the time. But even in working with a lot of internal medicine doctors, where they tend to struggle is if they feel the mechanics and all the things internally are working and the child still isn't eating. That's where I think our role definitely comes in as explaining the why of the history of the trauma of other components as opposed to just the medical. So whereas I think if you're working primarily with pediatricians, you know, when I was in home health, I was having a lot of times to fight for the assessment medically and to advocate for why there might be something medically going on. But where I am right now, oftentimes there's still some of that, but not as much because I'm working with pretty fantastic doctors, but where more so I'm having to advocate for is why are we helping the medical and they're still not eating? Where is that psychosocial component coming in? Where's that feeding skill component coming in? And that can be challenging as well because 
they think, you know, when everything's fixed, why aren't they eating? Which can be hard. And then, you know, to then piggyback again off of the neurodiversity affirming trauma informed, the building of interoception and those internal cues does not really benefit from a strict behavioral model because that does not, sorry, my cat snores really weird sometimes. She has a little bit of sleep apnea. She is not obese, Michelle. She just has a little bit of extra. And Tola Kitty has a killer primordial pooch. She has a pooch, which is a normal thing. That's a nor- actually for female cats. That's a normal thing. That's where she would have held her babies, but she did not have any babies. Right, Cola? <laughs> she heard me. But like, I think there was also a lot more lectures from the feeding PFD domain of not as much emphasis on these strict behavioral approaches that we have learned can cause trauma. And, and I think that was also really nice to see was much more. And then there were a couple lectures that you popped into that were more like feeding myth busting type lectures. Well, there's one that has, it's on my heart and it's made me think about how and where to steer for next year. It was the don't neglect the oral mech for pediatric feeding and swallowing. And it was with Dr. Amy Delaney and Dr. Rocky Garcia. And I, excuse me, I popped in, I guess I, you know, the hats. So I popped in on for that one, maybe the full second half. And they were my big takeaway was we have to teach the typical to understand the atypical, to be able to accurately identify the atypical. But then it pulled 14 different thoughts on how to address this. One, how many of us truly, even now, currently have a firm foundation in what typical feeding skills are. And let me caveat that with, I know Amy has some like killer literature that or research that's getting published um, later this year to talk about typical skills acquisition. And she will be the first to tell you that when she goes through those skills acquisitions, it's predicated off of essentially North American standards, right? And not indigenous people, indigenous persons approaches to a meal, but based off of essentially standard American approaches with silverware and utensils and food choices. But that's the other layer that it brought on was one, how do we teach the typical to students and new clinicians to PFD and not necessarily new clinicians in the sense that they're like CFs, but like if they're coming from a different area, but like new to PFD, but then two, how do we get data developed on typical PO patterns for different cultures that take in different textures that use their hands predominantly instead of utensils or sit on the floor instead of sitting at a table because all of those factors change the oral preparatory stage. If you're sitting versus on the ground versus sitting at a table, if you're using your hands versus if you're using a fork, but it then triggered the additional thought of how as faculty, are we teaching the typical? And then how are we actually prepping the students for their clinicals at the university level in a university clinic? Are they getting exposure and experience with pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders at a university clinic? And the answer to that is overwhelmingly no. So I sat in their lecture and then went 14 different directions and then feel compelled to create a panel discussion for this for next year on how faculty are actually teaching PFD and 
teaching the actual art of therapy within the university clinic, which I think would be a really dynamic discussion, probably a very small, intimate group in attendance. But I feel like that's something that we could partner with, like ASHA SIG-10, which is issues in higher education. I think it's issues in higher education. I'm not quite sure on the norms, but or that topic committee for next year. So my takeaways were essentially, we got a lot more work to do but we've got to teach our students that firm foundation. So folks, if you're a clinical supervisor and you're taking and you're teaching the students, we've got to fill them with what the typical is based off of and reflective of the population that you work with when we still don't have very well-defined norms. So mm-hmm. what I will say too, is that my only, like not my worry, like, that's important and that needs to happen. But what I don't want is for it to go too far in that direction without teaching clinicians how to then look at a child very individually. Because similar to the language norms, like we have a lot of those, but where I struggle with feeding is I feel like at my hospital system, I I think that we're pretty well established on like, we really focus on norms, like um, what typical looks like where I worry with, and this isn't at my hospital, but like at other places, you know, when I've talked to other clinicians is okay. We can identify that this isn't typical. We can identify that it's a pediatric feeding disorder. But then do we understand how to look at a child's individual differences and help them develop skills in that trajectory that may not look the same? So knowing typical is about identification, but we can't then expect that that child is necessarily going to typically advance those skills if we're identifying that this isn't typical if that makes any sense. So uh, right now where I am, I'm working with patients who have discharged from the hospital, with patients who have been at the hospital for a year, who have multiple, like a myriad of medical diagnoses. Their development with feeding is not going to look typical. So what I need to figure out is where their strengths are, where their interests are, and what the family's goals are. And it combine all of those things to help the family work on their goals with their child. So that's, I think when I do see people that are get too stuck on the norms, it can, with that, you know, teaching of that, making sure that we then don't push for clinicians to have to okay, well, they're not doing this. They have to do this and then this and then this and then this. Like I have patients who will never drink from a bottle and I'm going to try cup really early, which some clinicians may be like, that's not when they're supposed to start cup. Well, guess what? Their suck reflux is gone. They're not, they have an aversion to the bottle. So at five months, maybe I am trying a cup. I know the suck reflux goes away at six months, but you know what I mean? Yes, but that's also valid. When you get your CLC course or you go through IBCLC course, they actually talk about how there is an innate reflux that they can drink off the side of the spoon or drink from, and they almost lap it like a little kitten. It's kind of really precious and cute. And when you watch the videos, your ovaries were like, I need a baby, or at least that's what mine did. <laughs> but like, so there's that. But what you talked about they high is parallel to, and what I pulled from, um, there was another talk, Working Together to Move Evidence into Practice in Pediatric Feeding Disorders. It was by Dr. Jean Marshall and Dr. Meg Ciamoni. Meg, I butchered it again, sweetie. I really tried. I'm so sorry. But what they opened with was the discussion on what is implementation science. And there was another talk that I couldn't make it to, and it was by Dr. Becca Wada and Dr. Megan Israeli Augustine, Augustine Israeliason. Megan, I'm so sorry. I forgot your last name off the top of my head, but theirs was on implementation science and AAC. And we had them on the podcast a while back, but 
what Meg and Jean were talking, I love that implementation science is truly trickling down into all of the scopes of practice that we encounter and engage in on a day-to-day basis. And implementation science, there's so many different models that you can select from, but the grand thought is that it's not, you're going to target something new and then immediately implement it. It is, you're going to identify a new skill set and then make a tiny change, reassess, implement it, reassess how that implementation went for you and then do it again and do it again and do it again. One of the things that Dr. Wada Becca had mentored me in was that Michelle, they take time. Truly, when you're engaging in the art of implementation science, it's a three-year return on investment. And let's be honest, some of our PFD babies, they are in there for three years, especially when they have those super complex um, medical etiologies like what Aaron's talking about. But that's what you're doing. Your example is how are you taking this is the evidence that we have and how are we extrapolating the most important information and then making tiny tweaks to it because the population that you see will never hit all of those norms um, because they were in PO for periods of time or because of their baseline medical conditions or because think about our EOE population. They only ever be allowed or green-lighted for like four foods. So how are you going to do feeding therapy to reach those norms if there's only those four foods that they're allowed to trial, you know? Mm -hmm. And how are we also acknowledging that typical norms are neurotypical? And if we are dealing with neurodivergent populations, they're not necessarily going to meet with those norms. So to Michelle's point, we need to know those. Yes. And that's okay. But don't take all of these neurotypical norms and force them onto populations that they don't fit. Yes. So what is, there's four, I just brain farted on her name. I napped so hard before we talked. Savories, Dr. Reva Barwali. So Reva, when she does her talk on mastication patterns and chew patterns, she talks about how in her talk, there's four different there's the crunchers, there's the smushers, there's there's different chew patterns. And then they went so far as to identify that children with Down syndrome have a typical food group that they like to stick with. And I think it was the smushers. And, and so that was it the why, crunchy. I think it was the crunchy, wasn't it? I don't remember. Clearly, I need to go back and study that lecture again because I have my notes on it. But they have a preferred pattern. That was my takeaway was that they have one that within that population, there's a known mastication pattern where individuals feel comfortable. So then my question is, if we have that data and those children are there and they are nourished and they are growing and they are happy, we can let go the need to then apply as you were talking about the neurotypical norms on those populations because they're there and they're happy. It's like Uncle Matthew always chews with his mouth open, but that's because he can breathe because he has really enlarged adenoids. If we ask Uncle Matthew to close his mouth when he's chewing all the way, he can't breathe. But he also can't do the surgery to get his adenoids out because Mm -hmm. of his baseline medical conditions. It's just not worth the risk for him. Um, my goodness, he had a, the seizure at ASHA before the year before I'm just getting eye, eye surgery. So those are variables that when you go to a conference and you go to a class, soak it in, but then engage in that impl- active implementation science. And how can I extrapolate and apply and implement this while honoring the autonomy and independence of the preferred wishes of the child. Because here's, I would love to see research and I'm also kind of terrified to see it at the same time. Why are we not interviewing neurodiverse adults to find out their preferred foods and PO patterns? Honoring that. Marsha is. 
Wait, what? Marsh Klein has been talking to a bunch of autistic adults to try and gain their experience of eating and and therapy and all of that. Mm-hmm. That's amazing because we need. Yes, if that. you haven't listened, mm-hmm, one of my favorite podcasts other than ours, Two Sides of the Spectrum, did an interview with Marsha Dunklein because, and I talked about this on Instagram when I was listening. I mean, Marsha's been doing this for a long time. She's was a pioneer in pediatric feeding and swallowing, and. She's saying, you know, I'm learning, I'm learning more about neurodiversity affirming therapy and trauma informed therapy. And that her response is to, you know, change some of what maybe she was doing. And I love, and what she says in the podcast too is what she kept saying was multiple things can be true. You can have been doing the best that you thought and have learned something else that that may not be the practice we want to use now and change your practice and do this. It's not a this or that. And it's not a, you know, shame you for doing what you were doing before. It's a I'm growing and learning and shifting and changing. And so I think that's really admirable and should be the goal for clinicians at any age is to to be able to not be so guarded and stuck in new information because I think it is a scary thing and we're afraid to upset people's feelings too. Like the amount of conversations I've had with clinicians where it's like, well, I was trying to send my supervisor articles on why we don't want to be doing this, but the articles are very, you know, it can cause depression and anxiety. And it's like, but that's what it is. And frankly, I'm a little bit tired of trying to navigate for everybody else's feelings and make them feel, I'm not in control of your feelings. You're going to respond to this in the way that you're going to respond to. My job is to give you the information and not have to like sugarcoat everything to make people feel better about what they've been doing. Maybe we should sit in it. Maybe we should sit in, in what's been happening and recognize that you're not a bad person. This is what information was told to us, but where you can decide if you continue to ignore it, that's different than that not being the information that was there to begin with. Yes. It is really kind of cool to turn 40. And I know I'm turning 41 in like two months. But I remember being in my 20s and being so hyper-focused on what other people thought of me. And, you know, there was trauma and some variables and then hitting my thirties and being so angry when there was something that needed to be done and people either couldn't, didn't, or wouldn't because of numerous variables step up to implement a change, to advocate. And then learning how to, (laughs) through a whole lot of grace, to let it go and know that I can do the part that I can do. And then getting close to turning 40 and then turning 40, I I mean, I can't say what exact advice my stepmom gave me, but um, you just don't give a fig. (laughs) And you can paraphrase Mama Lisa's advice. But you truly, you just, it's so freeing to embrace the concept that I can do what I can do to contribute to move the world better and my choices impact myself and my immediate family. I am responsible for those reactions and, and that. But how that information is perceived by others, that's indicative of their emotional intelligence and where they are on their walk. Now, as I say this, do I live that freeing ability every single day and every single moment? No. Does Erin pull me down from the ceiling and patch me up when I call crying and scared and frustrated? You bet she does because she's basically my counselor. I pull on her um, sake degree from undergrad. (laughs) Her and Christian do a very good job. (laughs) Yay, go team. But That's the emotional intelligence piece that we as clinicians have to evolve. And there was a neuron that was connected to all of that and it's gone, but it will come back probably in like a few minutes. But the onus is on, I remembered it, the onus is on us to be lifelong learners. And on that note, I am finally 
registered for my DIR floor time 101 class because we don't really have the extra I'm very excited. I mean, we didn't really have the extra $219 lying around, but it was... I know, but you're going to love it. I'm so excited because... And honestly, honey, it's the first one. There's a lot more science in it too. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. This is the first... A lot more neuro, like a lot more actual studies on neurobiologic differences in autistic brains. Oh, I love this. But this is... Which you'll find really cool. Yes. Yes, I will. This is my little science self is like tickled pink about it, but... I am so glad that you have perpetually demonstrated the value of this training to me, both professionally and personally. And I'm excited to see how this will even impact my parenting. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like how, Mm -hmm. like the level of patience that I have. So also, how freaking cool was it to go down the escalator at Asha and there's the giant DIR floor time poster that was hanging from the ceiling. The banner, that's what it was. It was the DIR banner. The banner. They had a really good banner. Their booth could have used some work, but their banner was great. (laughs) Their booth was a little visually overstimulating. They had a lot of handouts. They really did. Yeah, the banner was great. (laughs) The booth was a lot, especially I think we went on like – the tail end of Friday when we were both just like, ah. <laughs> no, we went Thursday after my lecture and I was like, this is a lot. Cause it was very emotional. Michelle and I like, I think, and I learned from Michelle, but also this is who we are. Like it's when we lecture, it's very emotional because it's not half the time Michelle and I, and bless Dr. G Marshall, because we like each did our slides and she was like, I wanted to make sure I was good with my slides. And I didn't say this to her when we were lecturing, but I wanted to be like, you know, I'm just probably going to say whatever comes to my brain. So like what's on the slide isn't necessarily what I'm going to say. Like when Michelle and I make slides for our, like we, it's all in our brain. Like it's, I mean, I don't mean like we know, like, but like if I'm putting, if I'm doing a presentation on something, like I've thought about this 5 million times in five different ways and talked about it for hours. So it's not like, you know, what's on the slides, like who knows what's going to come out of our mouth. <laughs> but that's also because it's very emotional. Like we care a lot about what we present on. And, and I, you know, if I'm presenting on something, like if I've gotten to the point where I'm presenting on it, I've probably thought about presenting on it for months to a year, but I find it very important to live it, breathe it. You know, I don't gather all potential data sources. Yeah. Like I just, and probably that's a little bit of the like imposter syndrome thing, but I want to be authentic in my experience and where I'm coming from. And so that's important. Well, the lectures were great. The time was great. And I so worried about, do we embrace enough topics? Do we cover enough grounds? And then when you serve as topic chair, you get to get the feedback on the talks and how they performed and, you know, like what was, you know, affirmation. One of the ones that had some of the most glowing reviews was Dr. Lindsay Myers-Turner and Inez Esperanza uh, gave one on DEIA barriers to entering the world of PFD. And I couldn't make it to the talk, but I swooped in right at the very end. And there was just the committee's this year outdid themselves, all of them, in the work to select high quality, high caliber presentations. And it was really, really humbling when at the tail end of convention, um, Jacqueline Peterson, she's the CEO of Feeding Matters. um, She told me, she goes, the feeding talks this year were the best I've seen Thank you. And of course, I did the only appropriate thing and started crying because, you know, Asha makes me cry. It's just so emotionally, joyfully overwhelming. But yeah, that was great. So also, well, and I will also say, 
Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I got to meet Martin Brodsky. If you guys don't know who Dr. Martin Brodsky is, he is like the adult dysphagia guru. And I got lost at one of the after parties while trying to find one of the after parties. I was one of my friends received an Ash Fellow and I was trying to find the room to go support, but I could not understand the map on the hotel like lobby because it was, they had them instead of it being like an aerial view of the map, it was almost like a lateral view of the map. And I just, my brain doesn't work that way. So I'm sitting there just looking at this map thinking, well, how the hell do I translate this? And this man came over and he was like, ma'am, do you need help? And I was like, yes, please. And so I started chit-chatting and lo and behold, it's Martin Brodsky. (laughs) It's like when I realized who it was, I was like, oh my God, I am such a fan of your work because he focuses on critical care for dysphagia and like, trauma in critical care and how can like intubation trauma and how that can trigger um, pharyngeal dysphagia later on. But like he was genuinely the kindest person ever. And he helped me understand the map. I got where I needed to get to supported the friend, but, and he's going to come on and do a podcast. So like huzzah for like, it's moments like that, that you don't anticipate and good things happen. Also, so it's like running into Jill Harvinson say- at the bathroom. Yes. Well, also, I will say, as you know, a young clinician, well, I'm just turned 30, so I don't know how young I am, but it's very weird and crazy. And you just like, when you, because I said this at every ASH, I'm always amazed at the women that are older than me and how they can hang till really late when I'm like, I'm exhausted. There was one night where Karen and I went to dinner and we were like, we're just too tired. So I'm literally laying in bed at 9 PM. Michelle calls me and she's like, we have to go to the sparkle party. And I was like, well, first of all, what's sparkle party? And second of all, why do I have to go? So I got out of bed and changed and Michelle and I did stay out till 2 AM just hanging out with people who I've read their articles. I was like, this is literal insanity because we're just chilling with all these (laughs) people that I've just like watched from afar and it was just totally normal. That was very interesting. The people you meet and, you know, I tell you, I mean, when you let people that have families and kids and you just let them free, you just never know. I mean, I'm always free because I'm (laughs) single and don't have children. So on behalf behalf of Married middle age or committed middle age women. When we get together with our tribes and we get to talk nerdy and have cocktails, let's be honest. Some of Ash's also, enjoyment is truly the after party. Special shout out to Renee, who had the best outfit at the Bridgerton party and then continued to like act like she was at the Bridgerton party all night. It was my favorite thing <laughs> of Asha, I think. We have video evidence of it. It was so wonderful. She looks like Princess Peach. Mm-hmm. So I got to volunteer at the Ash Foundation reception and help pass out awards. And Renee was my date. And I was like, be my date. And so Renee was my date. I didn't know we both picked pink dresses. Renee got a new one. I wore one that I always wear to work, but I dress like that to work. I, I did wear gloves and tiara. I got those new. Also, mm-hmm. wait, who you put really the tiara in? Oh my gosh. It was Meg. Dr. Meg Ciamoni put my tiara in because she's apparently like has secret skills as a photographer and a hairdresser. Oh, no. And so she helped me put my tiara in to go to this thing. And Renee stole the show, dude. She just seriously looked just like you said, like a princess. So Renee, we love you, Meg. Thank you for making us cool. But y'all, it was great. So here's the deal. We are back at it for this year, for 2024. I have been asked to serve again as the topic chair for PFD and dysphagia. Aaron amongst 27, 28 colleagues, literally from across the country in Alaska, Everywhere, Mississippi to Florida, NICU to home health, faculty to all different walks, we are here to serve. And part of that is please submit your call for papers for 2024 in Seattle. And we truly, truly look forward to to you joining us. And thank you for being part of the journey. Thank you for joining us in 2023. And thank you for joining First Fight and for allowing us to grow our evidence-based triangles together.
And until next year, we will keep our episodes a coming and um, know that you are appreciated. Thank you for joining us for today's course. To complete the course, you must log into your account and complete the quiz and the survey. If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete mailing address in your account profile prior to course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to reflect on your ASHA transcript. Please note that if this information is missing, we cannot submit to ASHA on your behalf. Thanks again for joining us. We hope to see you next time. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Mm -hmm.